It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Spring. The time of year when a young man's fancy turns to one thing. Hittites, particularly the most famous Hittite king of them all, Superluliuma I. Hi, I'm Dominic from the History of Egypt podcast. And I'm Scott Chesworth from the Ancient World podcast. And we're here to let you know about a very special event. Every so often, the stars align such that two ancient podcasts intersect in April, the History of Egypt podcast will be doing a special episode covering the deeds of Superluliuma, the Hittite king whose reign was contemporary with the Egyptian pharaohs Akhenaten, Nefer-Neferu-Aten, and Tutankhamun. At around the same time, the Ancient World podcast will be starting a brand new series on the life and death of the Neo-Hittite kingdoms. Beginning with the Hittite capture of the Syrian city of Carchemish by, you guessed it, Superluliuma the first. So be sure to subscribe to the Ancient World podcast to get the Hittite side of the story. And subscribe to the History of Egypt podcast to get the Egyptian side of the story, along with this special episode on Superluliuma the first. Thanks for listening to our respective shows. May the thousand gods of Hatti and the great gods of the Egyptian cosmos bless you and your life. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 141, Restoration. Today, we explore one of Tutankhamun's most significant projects. The King of Egypt promises, and then enacts, a wide-reaching program, investing huge resources in the temples of the gods. In a massive public rejection of Akhenaten's policies, the Egyptian government spends large to satisfy the divine beings. They also use the opportunity to strengthen their power, increase their legitimacy, and reward their followers. This project survives in a lengthy, detailed proclamation. Today, we explore the restoration stealer of King Tutankhamun. This episode comes to you on behalf of Henning Roigard petersen Lee Bergen, and Samuel Liebert. Resources flow to the temples from such lands as Denmark and Sweden. For these gifts, I can only say, Tak. May Amun, King of the Gods, and Ptah, Lord of Ma'at, reciprocate with blessings and long lives for you and your kin. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. On with the story. The year was 1341 BCE, give or take. 
It was Regnal Year Three under the majesty of Neb Keparu Ra Tutank Amun, the king of southern and northern Egypt. Tutank Amun was approximately twelve years old, maybe more. He and his government were newly invested with power, and Tutankhamun's regime was still establishing its legitimacy. The young king, along with his advisers, needed to fulfill certain expectations. For twenty years, the rulers Akhenaten and Neferneferuaten, Nefertiti, had neglected some of Egypt's institutions. Akhenaten, in particular, had starved certain temples of resources. And he had even attacked the great god Amun directly. King Neferneferuaten, Nefertiti, had started to undo that to restore the relationship between Amun and the crown, but she had only reigned for a few years, and she never fully committed to the old order. Now, King Tutankhamun had to complete what Neferneferuaten had started. When the new government first took power, the royal officials probably had to deal with many dissatisfied groups. Akhenaten had closed major temples and essentially fired their priests. That was quite significant. Many families used the temples as a major source of income. Influential groups would send their sons and daughters to serve as priests and priestesses. Those jobs gave them access to the wealth of the temples. Likewise, religious jobs were a source of prestige and influence in their local communities. So, a temple was not just a stone building with nice art; it was the center of social and economic life for many, many people. When Akhenaten closed the great sanctuaries, he deprived many families of wealth and prestige. Nefertiti had started to heal that wound, but she did not live long enough to fix it. Now, Tutankhamun and his advisers were responsible for the problem. This is where the decree of restoration comes into play. Tutankhamun's decree appears on a large stone stele. Originally, there were multiple steles, various copies of the text erected in different sanctuaries. Today, only one of them survives in a reasonably complete form. It is in the Cairo Museum, but originally it stood at Karnak Temple. The stele is approximately 2.5 meters tall. It is made of quartzite, and it appears in two sections. At the top, we see Tutankhamun making offerings to the gods, to Amun-Ra and to Mut. The king's great wife, Ankhesen Amun, used to stand behind Tutankhamun, but somebody erased her figure later. We will come back to that at the appropriate moment. The images of Tutankhamun with the gods are pretty standard, and they fit the stereotype of Egyptian royal stelae. If you only looked at the picture, say as you were walking past, this stele might not seem remarkable, but below the art, the text itself appears. Here is where the restoration decree begins. The decree opens with the standard royal language. It introduces the date, which is lost. It gives the pharaohs names and titles, and it presents a little spiel about how much the gods love Tutankhamun. The text describes Tutankhamun as a favored son. All of the gods love him, and the decree says that he, the pharaoh, will restore order and banish chaos. 
This is stereotypical for Egyptian royal decrees. Tutankhamun's language is something that many kings used in their proclamations. Every ruler needed to prove their legitimacy, their value as a king. To do that, they often claimed to be restoring order and ending times of chaos. It was standard stuff. Say the world is crumbling and declare that only I can fix this. In that sense, Tutankhamun's decree is propaganda in the classic sense. It promotes the king's regime and presents him as an antidote to the country's problems. However, Tutankhamun's decree is notable for the detail that he gives. After introducing himself and his agenda, the king does actually describe this chaos. He explains in detail the terrible calamities that fell upon the land. In the first important section of the decree, Tutankhamun says, quote, When his majesty appeared as king, the temples and the cities of the gods and goddesses, starting from Elephantine and as far north as the delta, were fallen into decay and their shrines were fallen into ruin. They had become mounds overgrown with grass. Their sanctuaries were like something that had never come into being, and their buildings were a footpath, for the land was in ruin. End quote. To begin, Tutankhamun declares that Egypt's temples and cities had collapsed. Neglect and maltreatment had caused them to decay. Once, the gods' houses had been splendid and shining. Now, they were little more than mounds, overgrown and useless. It is a dark image, the very opposite of order, or ma'at. And what is worse, this neglect had angered the gods themselves. According to the next part of the text, the divine beings had turned away from Egypt. Tutankhamun says, quote, The gods were ignoring this land. If an army went to Jahi or Canaan to broaden the boundaries of Egypt, no success came to pass. If one prayed to a god to ask something from him, the god did not come at all. And if one beseeched any goddess in the same way, she did not come at all. The gods' hearts were weak because of their bodies, and they destroyed what was made. End quote. Dark days had fallen on the land. The gods and goddesses had abandoned Egypt because of neglect. As a result, armies on campaign in the north failed to achieve their goals. Prayers and offerings received no answer. The gods were weak, their bodies were failing, and they had turned on the people. This text is famous because it paints a bleak picture of Egypt's condition. Tutankhamun presents an image of a country collapsing. The foundations of Egyptian life, the favour of the gods, had vanished. Now, darkness came to the land. If you take this decree at face value, it sounds like Egypt was crumbling. Many historians have treated this text as a realistic portrait of the Amarna period. They take these words out of context and use them to reconstruct the reign of Akhenaten. Tutankhamun's predecessor, Akhenaten, did make unusual decisions, and he did attack the names and shrines of Amun, king of the gods. So when Tutankhamun says that temples decayed, that the gods abandoned Egypt, some writers assume he is talking about Akhenaten. 
That might be true, but it does not mean Tutankhamun is describing things accurately. In episode 133, we explored the evidence for Akhenaten's heresy. And one of the things we found was that Akhenaten's attack on the gods was surprisingly limited. Current evidence indicates that Pharaoh's anger focused on Amun, the Hidden One. Akhenaten tried to erase that god above all. By contrast, though, other deities did not receive the same violent treatment, at least not nearly as much. Akhenaten ignored many gods. He did not give them offerings, but he did not destroy them like he did to Amun. So Tutankhamun's description is probably hyperbole, an exaggeration of what Akhenaten did. The Restoration Decree paints the reign of Akhenaten in extremely negative terms. Not because this was accurate, but because it was useful. Tutankhamun's government needed to establish legitimacy. They needed to present their agenda and their value as new rulers of Egypt. After all, Akhenaten and Nefertiti had spent 20 years changing royal policies. Logically, they must have had opponents, people who disagreed with their ideas and rejected their initiatives. Some of those people could have been powerful. Wealthy families who saw their influence under threat. Priests and priestesses who lost privileges and income from temples. Bureaucrats whose connections and responsibilities changed as Akhenaten messed with the system. All of these people, and many more, could have been clamouring for change, for a return to older policies. Clamouring for restoration. This is the true context of Tutankhamun's decree. Superficially, the text is a rejection of Akhenaten and his policies. But it is also more than that. The decree is a promise that the new king will give certain people more access to power. He will not just restore temples and gods, he will restore privileges. He will reopen the sanctuaries, but he will also reopen the economy. Tutankhamun will restore the connections between wealthy families and religious institutions. In short, he will give them back their power. So, that is the brief context of what Tutankhamun was saying. His description of Egypt and its troubles might have some basis in fact, but it probably exaggerates the damage to benefit the king's agenda. In short, the beginning of the Restoration Decree is more complex than it seems. And as we move into the decree itself, we will see how Tutankhamun's promises actually played out. Having covered the prologue and context for the Stela, it is time to get into specifics. In Chapter 2, we explore the details of the Restoration. What Tutankhamun did to restore the gods' favour how he negotiated power with powerful families and groups, and what the gods themselves thought of their new son. All this and more in Chapter 2, after the music. See you in a moment.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Having established his agenda and his overall goals, Tutankhamun now moves into the meat of his proclamation. He starts to proclaim what he has done on behalf of the gods, the ways that he has solved the crisis and repaired the damage. The king starts with the divine images, the golden statues of the gods which lived in every temple shrine. Tutankhamun says, quote, Then his majesty took counsel with his heart. He investigated every excellent deed, seeking benefactions for his father, Amun. He gave more than what had been done previously. He fashioned his father, Amun, to be carried upon thirteen carrying poles. Formerly, this noble god had been carried on just eleven carrying poles. The holy image or statue of Amun was made of electrum, an alloy of gold and silver, with lapis lazuli, turquoise, and every precious stone. The king also fashioned Pitar, south of his wall, the lord of Anktawi. His holy image was made of electrum, upon eleven carrying poles. Formerly, this noble god had been carried on just nine carrying poles. His divine statue, likewise, was made of electrum, lapis lazuli, turquoise, and every precious stone. End quote. Basically, Tutankhamun commissioned new statues and shrines for the great gods. For Amun, he commissioned a divine statue made of electrum, with precious stones embedded in it. The god would travel in a bark, which was carried on poles on the shoulders of priests. Apparently, Tutankhamun made a point of increasing the number of carrying poles on which the god travelled. This was a simple way of proclaiming that he was improving on what came before. Not only was Tutankhamun restoring damage, he was also increasing the splendour of the deities. Tutankhamun made these offerings for Amun, king of the gods, and for Bitar, the lord of Memphis, the great city of the north. Amun and Pitar were both creators, with immense power and prestige in their respective temples. Tutankhamun's offerings to these beings show his piety, how he is a favoured and loyal son of all divine beings. So far, Tutankhamun's gifts are primarily directed at the gods. He commissioned new statues and portable shrines for the divine beings. But now the king turns his attention to the temples themselves. Tutankhamun says, His majesty built monuments for the gods, fashioning their statues of real electrum from the best of the foreign lands, building their sanctuaries anew as monuments of eternity, endowed with property forever. He set aside offerings for them as daily sacrifices, 
providing their bread on earth. He surpassed what had been done before. He outdid what had been done since the time of the ancestors. End quote. That part is quite formulaic. Many kings would proclaim that they had given more than any generation before them, as if they were the most pious, the most generous, and the most loving son of the gods. So this section is standard stuff. But now Tutankhamun gets into some details, and these details are quite significant. In the next part of the text, Tutankhamun speaks about the priesthood. He tells us how he and his government appointed a whole new class of priests, young men who would serve in the temples and manage divine business. In the process, he reveals some behind-the-scenes details about power and political negotiation. The king says, quote, He, Tutankhamun, introduced Wab priests and God's servants to the temples. These priests were the children of the great ones of their towns. Each one was the son of a man whose name the king knew well. End quote. That might sound convoluted, so let's break it down. Tutankhamun and his advisors appointed new priests for the temples. They chose these people from the Seru, the nobility of each town and region. Every man, every new priest, was the, quote, son of a man whose name he knew. In other words, Tutankhamun's officials chose a new crop of priests from the wealthy and influential families. They promoted the children of courtiers, magistrates, local rulers, and officials. In short, the new Egyptian government made a series of political appointments. Their candidates were the children of nobility. That was significant for two reasons. Firstly, it was a good way for the king to build his support among the powerful. Every priest meant that another family gained a little bit of wealth and influence. Surely, they would be grateful to the ruler, and much more supportive of his policies. In other words, Tutankhamun needed allies, and he bought them with lucrative temple jobs. Secondly, this policy gave Tutankhamun and his government control. If the king appointed new priests, instead of reappointing old ones, then everybody working at the temples owed their jobs to the crown. In other words, Tutankhamun and his regime filled the temples with their people. Now they had a lot more influence over the various cults. This was valuable. Akhenaten had apparently fired many priests because they opposed his reforms. Tutankhamun, though, did something more productive. He filled those temples with new people, people who would owe him their loyalty. This little statement, I think, is one of the most significant in the text. It gives us a rare insight into the mechanisms of power. On the one hand, Tutankhamun and his advisors could increase their political control by having people they chose in the temples. At the same time, it shows what they were willing to give. Every priest and their family could now expect an increase in their wealth and prestige. In other words, Tutankhamun's government had gathered people to them and established loyalty, but they had also given wealth and influence to various powerful families. 
The relationship between the crown and the elites was a two-way street. The Restoration Stealer gives us a little insight into how that worked. As I mentioned earlier, Tutankhamun's restoration decree is partly a promise to restore the wealth and privileges of certain sectors of society. Here, we see this begin to play out. The king not only restores and improves the temples, he also dispenses wealth, giving them to the workshops of the temples, and distributing all kinds of good things for use. Of course, all these offerings went to the gods first, but after that, after they were used in ritual, the priests would divide this wealth among themselves. There was a well-established system for religious officials receiving a share of the offerings. So, when Tutankhamun gives wealth to the temples, he is also giving wealth to the people who work there. Most importantly, he is giving wealth to the noble families, the groups who have access to the temples, whose children become the priests, and who benefit from the wealth of these institutions. In other words, Tutankhamun used the temples as a way to reward his followers, to garner support, and to gain power over the land of Egypt. We see this most explicitly in the next section. Tutankhamun says, quote, The king gave more than what had existed before, surpassing anything that had been done since the time of the ancestors. He installed priests and high priests from among the children of the officials. Each one was the son of a man whose name that he knew. End quote. When the king of Egypt restored the temples physically with monuments and treasures, he also needed to restore them with people. Tutankhamun appointed new priests, and to choose those priests, he turned to the families who dominated the major communities. The hereditary nobles, the wealthy landed gentry, now provided their sons and probably daughters to be the priests and priestesses of Egypt's major centres. In other words, Akhenaten had closed the temples and fired most of the priests. Now, Tutankhamun stepped in to fill that void with a new generation. When the king did this, he effectively gave a whole group of families access to the wealth of Egypt's temples. This was traditional practice, it was totally respectable and legitimate. At the same time, the king built connections between his household and those of other families. Tutankhamun's restoration is not just an expression of piety or religious fervour. It is a shrewd economic document that records how the king of Egypt, just a child, built his powerful regime. So Tutankhamun gave lavishly to the gods, and he appointed a whole new class of priests to work in the temples. But divine statues and new acolytes would only get them so far. The temples themselves needed resources for their operations. As I said, the Egyptian temples were not empty stone buildings filled with art. Instead, they were living, breathing operations, almost corporations in an ancient sense. 
Because of that, these temple organizations needed resources. They needed supplies and tools to fulfill their sacred duties. In the next part of the Restoration Stela, we see how this played out. The king says, quote, His Majesty, life, prosperity, health, fashioned new river boats made from fresh pine trees of the hilltops, the choicest wood of the Negau region. He worked with the best gold of the hill countries so that these boats would light up the river with their brilliance. His Majesty, life, prosperity, health, consecrated male and female slaves, as well as female singers and dancers, girls who had been servants in the king's house, the Per Nesu. The service of these singers and dancers comes from the palace and the treasury of the lord of the two lands. I am causing these girls to be preserved and protected for my fathers, all of the gods. I do this so that they, the gods, will be satisfied with the doing of what their Ka spirits desire. I do this so that they will preserve the tilled land, Egypt. End quote. Tutankhamun commissioned new boats for the temples, barges that could carry people and resources up and down the river. This would be valuable if those institutions were to gather the materials they needed for their daily operations. As we will see in future episodes, the temples of Egypt owned large farmlands, estates which provided their needs. So when Tutankhamun made new boats, he gave them a valuable tool kind of like giving a company a set of freight trains. At the same time, Tutankhamun also gave new singers and dancers, who would work in the temples and fill them with music and joy. These performers seem to have been women from the king's palaces. In other words, they were Tutankhamun's dependents, they relied on him, and apparently he was free to do with them as he wished. Tutankhamun sent these women to the temples to make music for the gods. But he also instituted some protections. The king made sure that no one would take these girls away from the temples. He specifically puts it in the decree that they should be preserved and protected. This is one of those little behind-the-scenes things that we occasionally get from royal decrees. It seems like temple personnel, singers, servants, musicians, and so forth, were frequently being taken by other people, particularly royal officials, for various purposes. Sometimes a royal project would demand some type of expertise, and officials might take people from the temples to do the work. Every now and again, Egyptian kings issue decrees to forbid that kind of practice. If they give people to the temples, they will institute protections to make sure no one tampers with it. This is one of those interesting little details that we occasionally get from these royal texts. They seem like grandiose propaganda, and they are, but they also preserve wonderful little tidbits about life in the Nile Valley. Anyway. Tutankhamun has given new statues for the gods, he has repaired their temples, and he has given them people and resources for their operations. Now, it is time for the gods to show their gratitude, and in the last sections of the stela, 
we see how the great deities responded to the king. Tutankhamun says, quote, As for the gods and goddesses who are in this land, their hearts are joyful. The lords of the shrines are rejoicing, the two riverbanks are shouting praise, and exultation pervades the entire land now that good plans have come to pass. As for the Ennead, the divine councils, which are in the temples, their arms are raised in admiration, and their hands are filled with jubilees continually, forever. Life and dominion proceed from them to the nose of the victorious king. End quote. To round out his decree, Tutankhamun and his speechwriters include a nice section about the gods. How grateful they are for the king's gifts, how much they will bless him and Egypt for his generosity. Tutankhamun is the pious son of Amun, of Ra, of Ptah, of all deities. And because he is such a great ruler, the gods will return to the land of the Nile, and they will bring prosperity, success, wealth, happiness, and long life to the king and all his subjects. Surely, Tutankhamun is the great restorer, the one who has brought Ma'at, justice and order, back to the two lands. Of course, this is all propaganda in the classic sense. Tutankhamun and his regime are trying to communicate how important they are, how valuable his rule is for the proper justice and order of the country. The Restoration Stealer is communicating an idea. It is trying to convince anyone who reads it that King Tutankhamun is an essential part of the world order. Of course, we should read it critically. We should dive beneath the surface to try and understand what the king is communicating specifically. The text is not just a superficial record of Tutankhamun's accomplishments. It also tells us a lot about the mechanisms of power, the connections between the royal household and the wealthy, influential families of Egypt. In other words, the Restoration Stealer is a noteworthy piece of royal propaganda. But, if you read between the lines, it contains a great deal of social, economic, and historical information. The Restoration Decree of King Tutankhamun is a significant text. Although it is formulaic and frequently strays into propaganda, it does contain a great deal of valuable information. On the one hand, we can get a very basic sense of how Tutankhamun and his government depicted the reign of Akhenaten and what came before. At the same time, we can also dig between the lines to understand how this king and this regime established their power and built connections with the influential families of the land. The king of Egypt was not all-powerful. He relied on consensus with other groups in order to enact his policies. And for a young king like Tutankhamun, who inherited power from a controversial figure, it was important to establish strong ties with certain groups. The Restoration Stealer gives us information about how Tutankhamun accomplished that. He, and his officials, instituted major reforms related to the temples, 
And they dispensed a huge amount of wealth through those temples to Egypt's powerful families. In other words, the restoration stealer records Tutankhamun's public piety. It also records the shrewd maneuvers that he and his government used to establish their power. The restoration stealer is not just a coda or epilogue to the reign of Akhenaten. It is also a record of the behind-the-scenes politics and the economic factors that influenced the pharaohs of Egypt. Tutankhamun's restoration decree is perhaps his most famous text. But recently, scholars have started to uncover other important aspects of this king's reign. Today, we also have a surprising amount of evidence for King Tutankhamun's wars. Historical records, both artistic and textual, give us a sense that this period witnessed a great deal of fighting. Tutankhamun's armies and his generals were active on the frontiers of the empire, and over the next few episodes, we will explore some of these events. First up, we need to travel north to see how Tutankhamun's regime and his great general Horemheb might have led campaigns against a rising power. It is time to introduce the Hittites. The audio editing and mixing for this episode was done by Vincent Kavanagh. The music for the show comes from a variety of composers. The main theme is by Keith Zizzer, with additional interludes by Bettina Joy de Guzman. Also, I sometimes include music by Jeffrey Goodman, Michael Levy, and Brendan and Derek Feichter. All songs appear by permission of the composers. If you want to learn more about these musicians, follow the links in the episode description, and please consider supporting them. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. If you are enjoying the show and would like to support my work, consider joining the Patreon. Patreon subscribers get exclusive perks like early releases, ad-free episodes, and occasional outtakes of extra material. For the price of a coffee every month, you get the best possible version of the show, without that annoying consumerism attached. Visit patreon.com forward slash Egypt podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash Egypt podcast. Thank you. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.